ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. On the 22nd of November, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas. It was an event that shocked America and the world. To this day, many Americans can tell you where they were when Kennedy was shot. And most Americans will tell you that the official explanation for the assassination, namely a lone gunman, is not the whole story. Sixty years on, after numerous inquiries, endless books and a feature film, the truth about the Kennedy assassination is still being debated. In this revision with me, Annabel Quince, the assassination that changed the world and how the conspiracy theories that followed reshaped America. The theories about what happened that day in Dallas are endless. So are there any facts that most people do agree on? Michelle Garnier is the author of Thinking Critically About the Kennedy Assassination. There's a famous author, former prosecutor called Vincent Bugliosi, who says that many of the conspiracy theorists, including Oliver Stone, get three things right. The date, the place and the victim. I think there's a little bit more than that to agree on, but essentially, President Kennedy had traveled throughout the south of the United States in the weeks leading up to November 22nd, 1963. Now, he was shot in Dealey Plaza. There's disagreement about how many times he was shot or how many gunshots, but most people will agree that some gunshots came from above and behind him from a building called the Texas School Book Depository. It is with deep regret that we announce that President Kennedy is dead. He was shot down as he was driving in an open car through the city of Dallas, Texas. Then half an hour after the shooting, it was announced that the president was dead. It's not an exaggeration to say that the Kennedy assassination was really the first global media event. If it didn't quite happen entirely in real time, it was an event that quickly, news of which spread across America and across the world. My name is Peter Knight, and I'm a professor of American studies at the University of Manchester in the UK. And the author of The Kennedy Assassination. There is a false memory. Lots of people swore that they saw the assassination live on TV, although there were TV cameras there and there's film footage of various parts leading up to the assassination. It wasn't actually carried live on TV. But needless to say, as soon as the news broke that Kennedy had been shot and injured and then that he had died within an hour, that news was carried on TV. And about 95% of the American population had heard the news within an hour. And then obviously within 24 hours, the news had spread around the world. Within hours, the Dallas police had arrested Lee Harvey Oswald. The speed of the arrest fueled speculation that the authorities either knew about Oswald or had framed him. So why did suspicion fall on Oswald so quickly? Philip Sheenan was a reporter with the New York Times and is the author of Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. Uh, Oswald was an employee of the Texas School Book Depository. And after the president was shot and all the chaos that followed, Lee Harvey Oswald was the only worker at the book depository who left the building. 
He appears to have gone initially by bus and then by taxi to his rooming house across town in a neighborhood known as Oak Cliffs. He picks up a gun he had in the rooming house and then begins wandering towards the outskirts of the city. He kills a Dallas police officer by the name of J.D. Tippett. There are several eyewitnesses to the murder of Tippett by Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald then flees the scene of Officer Tippett's murder, rushes towards a movie theater nearby, slips into the movie theater. The police are informed, and then the police go in and arrest him in the Texas movie theater. And at the time of his arrest, he announces that he is being persecuted and that he is an innocent man. Did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. The first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall asked me that question. Is there any evidence that he actually ever confessed to the crime or said, put his hand up and said, yes, I, I did it, I shot Kennedy? When he was arrested, he was taken to the Dallas police station. There was absolute mayhem in the police station with news reporters and many other people crowding in. There's a famous TV clip of Oswald shouting to the press that I'm just a patsy. And this has fueled many conspiracy theories ever since. So Oswald didn't confess. And then within 24 hours, Oswald himself had been shot by Jack Ruby, a local nightclub owner. And so Oswald never went to trial. And therefore, we know very little about what Oswald might have said in defense or whether he might have confessed further down the line. It was a feeding frenzy. You see reporters right next to Oswald and sticking cameras in the guy's face. And that's when Ruby decided that if he killed the guy that killed the president, he'd be a hero. And he stepped forward and shot him. shot, I saw Oswald grimace and fall, and then suddenly it was just a wild scramble. Oswald fell to the concrete in front of our eyes. It was the first live murder on television, and it was the beginning of the world's most enduring conspiracy theory. On Sunday, November 24th, so this would be two days after the assassination, there's a plan to remove Oswald from the police headquarters in Dallas and move him to a, another jail facility. And in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters on that Sunday morning, a local strip club owner by the name of Jack Ruby slips past the police, gets close to Oswald, and shoots him almost at point-blank range. Now, Jack Ruby was the subject of his own set of conspiracy theories. But Jack Ruby, as I say, was a strip club owner, sort of a gadfly around town, very friendly with police officers and reporters. And that he was able to slip past the police officers makes some sense because he was friendly with so many of them. They wouldn't have suspected that he was about to kill Oswald. And is there any clear evidence from him as to why he would do such a thing? Jack Ruby is quite clear. He loved the Kennedy family, loved President Kennedy, and was apparently shattered in tears when he learned news of President Kennedy's death. On the morning of the murder of Oswald, Jack Ruby had read in one of the local Dallas papers a story referring to Mrs. Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, how she was almost certainly going to have to return to Dallas to testify in the trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. Jack Ruby decides in his own delusional mind 
that he's going to get vengeance for Mrs. Kennedy. He's going to spare her from the horror of having to return to Dallas for the trial. So he sets out to kill Oswald, knowing that means there will never be a trial. But was Jack Ruby connected with any kind of organized crime that he could be seen as part of an ongoing conspiracy? You know, the mafia conspiracy theories, there's a certain logic to them that mafia bosses in the United States would have wanted to end the the Kennedy presidency because especially Robert Kennedy, President Kennedy's brother, who was the attorney general, you know, had declared war on organized crime. So one way to end that war on organized crime was to end the life of the president. And Jack Ruby throughout his life did have low-level connections to organized crime figures. He was a, a tough guy in many ways and had been since his youth. So the theory that emerges pretty quickly after Ruby kills Oswald, that Ruby was dispatched by the mob to silence Oswald, that made some sense. But the more I think about it, the more unlikely I'm convinced it is, because I say Jack Ruby is sort of the last man you'd want to carry out the second crime of the century. Not only was he delusional, but really mentally ill, he was also a blabbermouth. If he'd been part of a conspiracy, he probably would have revealed it to anybody who'd asked about it. So what happened at his trial? Did he reveal why he had shot Oswald? He and his brother, maybe his brother more than him, had hired a very big shot lawyer because Jack Ruby was slated to be executed for having assassinated Lee Oswald. So his lawyer wanted to play the insanity card. So they did not want to let Jack Ruby testify, though he wanted to. The lawyer chose not to do so. And they end up losing the case. And so Jack Ruby received the capital punishment, though he was slated to have a retrial and he died in prison within two years of cancer. The mafia were not the only suspects. It was 1973, the height of the Cold War. So the Soviet Union and the Cubans were also suspected, as well as right-wing racist groups from the deep south of America. There were those on the left liberals who were convinced in the immediate aftermath of the shooting that Kennedy had been the victim of kind of right-wing hate groups in Dallas. That's the way they immediately understood it. And yet, probably the majority of people suspected that this probably had something to do with the Cold War, maybe the Russians, maybe the Cubans. And so there was a fear, a very real fear, particularly in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis just a couple of years before, that the world might be on the brink of a nuclear catastrophe. And so that heightens this sense of not just confusion, but a sense of a deeply traumatic event that potentially has world-changing consequences. In the wake of the assassination, the murder of the chief suspect, and the explosion of conspiracy theories, President Johnson established the Warren Commission to work out what had happened and who was to blame. Initially, President Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy's successor, was quite determined that there would be no Washington-based federal investigation of the assassination. But these conspiracy theories grew so wild and grew wild so quickly. And some of the conspiracy theories centered on the idea that President Johnson had something to do with Kennedy's death, that Johnson decided there had to be a blue ribbon commission in Washington that would investigate the facts of the assassination. Johnson decides very early on that there's really only one man who can lead it, and that is Chief Justice Earl Warren, 
who is a revered figure to both Republicans and Democrats, or at least a good number of Republicans and Democrats. Warren was reluctant to do it, but Johnson insisted that otherwise there might well be the danger that unless the public were reassured that there had been no Russian involvement, America might end up in a nuclear war with the Soviets. And so that's how the Warren Commission was set up. They were given seeming carte blanche to look at everything. Very early on, the autopsy photos and x-rays of President Kennedy are brought to Chief Justice Warren, who takes one look at them and is so horrified that he decides that the commission will never see them. None of the commissioners see them. None of the staff members see them. So the sort of essential medical evidence about the president's death, where the gunshots landed, what damage had been done to his body by the gunshots, evidence that might have pointed to where the bullets had come from and how, with what sort of force they had entered the president's body. All of that evidence is denied to the commission. And to this day, because of that decision, really a lot of the medical evidence about President Kennedy's death is muddled. And there are many questions that will probably never be answered that could have been answered had the staff had the opportunity to see that evidence you know, 60 years ago. They did an amazing job in some ways at piecing together all of the details leading up to the assassination. Its finding was ultimately more or less the same as had emerged from the FBI within 24 hours of the assassination, namely that Oswald had acted alone. There was pretty much nothing more to be said. But what they didn't do are two things. First, they never really explained psychologically or politically why Oswald might have been the lone assassin. But the other problem with the Warren Commission report was to make the FBI and the CIA reveal what they knew about Oswald in advance of the shooting. So the FBI had Oswald on their watch list, and the CIA also knew about Oswald, but the CIA were keen to dampen down any suggestion that Oswald might have been acting in revenge or in counter-reaction to the CIA's own campaign of illegal assassination attempts on Castro, the Cuban leader. And it's some of those elements about the CIA's illegal activities trying to assassinate foreign leaders in the 1950s and 60s. That's what the Warren Commission report never really makes apparent. I think the record shows that both the CIA and the FBI hid a lot of information from the Warren Commission. Actually, there was an official history uh, the CIA produced several years ago in which the CIA's own in-house historian said that the CIA had engaged in a cover-up to hide information from the Warren Commission to try to make sure that the commission decided quickly and without much review of the evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald was guilty and he did it alone. The conclusion I've reached is that both the CIA and the FBI had a tremendous amount to hide from the Warren Commission. The story at the end of the day is that both the CIA and the FBI knew a lot about Lee Harvey Oswald before the assassination. They both had him under surveillance before the assassination. 
as Oswald is wandering around Mexico City meeting with Cuban spies and Soviet spies and people who at the height of the Cold War might have wanted to see President Kennedy dead, the CIA is trailing him everywhere he goes. It's listening to his phone calls. It's taking photographs of him outside the Cuban and Soviet embassies. And both the CIA and the FBI are eager to hide that sort of information to make sure they're not blamed for having bungled intelligence that might have saved President Kennedy's life. They want to portray Oswald as this delusional misfit, this lone wolf who could never have been stopped. But in fact, the evidence seems to suggest they had lots of information to suggest that Oswald was a danger and maybe a danger in particular to President Kennedy. The Warren Commission's final report found no conspiracy and determined that President Kennedy was killed by a lone gunman. The report, when first released, was widely accepted, but that changed over time. About 70% of Americans were satisfied with the Warren report initially. But after a year or two, things began to change. Some authors, particularly on the left wing, started to publish books and articles claiming that Lee Harvey Oswald had been set up by some other nefarious group. Often it was the CIA, sometimes it was organized crime, the military-industrial complex, whatever that means, because we're really talking about thousands of people there, from the highest generals to the men and women who peel potatoes. Another group that may have been blamed, it seems stupid right now, but there was a district attorney in New Orleans who arrested a local businessman, Clay Shaw. In 1969, Prosecutor Garrison failed to prove that New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw conspired to kill President Kennedy. But in the process, he publicized his much-criticized theory that Vice President Johnson, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia and Dallas police were part of a broad plot to kill Kennedy before he downgraded early U.S. military involvement in Vietnam. Because he believed that a number of gay men in New Orleans had conspired out of jealousy for this handsome and masculine president. Eventually, he changed his story to saying these men were in cahoots with the CIA. But Jim Garrison essentially launched a sort of a homophobic witch hunt that led to nothing. Clay Shaw was found innocent. So there have been a number of different conspiracy theories. Lee Oswald's mother, who is a very quaint character, who never showed any remorse or regret for what her son did. In fact, she believed her son was a secret agent who had tried to save the president. So Mark Lane, Marguerite Oswald, the district attorney of New Orleans, Jim Garrison, and many others, eventually created so much doubt in the public mind that little by little, by the end of the 60s, many people began to doubt the Warren Commission. Then in 1975, footage of the actual assassination, shot by a bystander, Abraham Zapruder, was shown for the first time on American television. That film, the Zapruder film, it was the most important piece of evidence available to the Warren Commission. It's a home movie taken by a local dressware manufacturer in Dallas by the name of Abraham Zapruder, who is filming the motorcade from just ahead of the president's motorcade in a place now known famously as the Grassy Knoll. Zapruder is filming it, and to his horror, he records the assassination of the president. And this ghastly film, he sells it to Life magazine. The American people do get to see still frames from the Zapruder film quite early on after the assassination. The most important thing the, the Zapruder film does for the Warren Commission is that the film acts like a clock that allows them to determine how quickly the president's limousine is moving, when the shots occur, what sequence they occur in. 
a big question for the Warren Commission is trying to determine if one gunman had enough time to get all those shots out. The actual film itself is not seen by the American public, as you say, for a couple of decades, and it's shown on on American television. I remember I was in high school at the time, and I remember seeing the Zapruder film for the first time and being shocked by it, A, because it is so horrifying, and B, because when you watch it, you do kind of have a sense that President Kennedy must have been shot from the front. He must have been shot from the direction of what's known as the grassy knoll, because his head moves back after the most dramatic of the blasts. And if it had been from the rear, from the Texas School Book Depository, you would assume his head would move forward. So I saw that film and I thought, wow, maybe the Warren Commission really did get it wrong. Maybe Lee Harvey Oswald didn't fire those gunshots from the Texas School Book Depository. But what I've come to learn since is that actually what happened with the president's head is is not terribly surprising to medical professionals. Many people were deeply shocked by the sheer horror of the footage. But obviously, by the time it was being shown in the mid-1970s, with the revelations about Watergate, about Vietnam, about the misdeeds of the intelligence agencies that have come to light, and with all of the conspiracy publications that had been put out since the late 60s through into the early 70s, the American public was primed to see that footage and to see what looks, to all intents and purposes, graphic confirmation that there must have been two shooters, one from the rear and one from the front. And therefore, if there were two shooters, there must have been, by default, a, a conspiracy. And at the same time, the US Congress had also decided to reopen the inquiry. They instituted a new investigation, and their findings came out in a year later in 1976, using another piece of new evidence, seemingly a police motorcycle dispatch rider's audio tape from what seemed to be from the very moment of the assassination. And that official inquiry from 75, 76 also came to the conclusion that there had been more than one shot. But in the case of both the Sapruda footage and this audio evidence, things were not quite as they seemed at first. It is perfectly possible, although I can see why most people would still feel it's unlikely, that what we're seeing when we see the Sapruda footage is indeed Oswald's shots from the rear. And it also turned out that that audio recording was actually not from the very moment of the assassination, and therefore the scientific report that had concluded that there were multiple shots from multiple directions had also been mistaken. In 1991, Oliver Stone released his feature film about the assassination, simply entitled JFK. Many strange things were happening, and your Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with them. We had the entire cabinet on a trip to the Far East. We had one-third of a combat division returning from Germany in the air above the United States at the time of the shooting. At 12.34 p.m., the entire telephone system went out in Washington for a solid hour. And on the plane back to Washington, word was radioed from the White House Situations Room to Lyndon Johnson that one individual performed the assassination. Does that sound like a bunch of coincidences to you, Mr. Garrison? No. Not for one moment. Those of us who'd been in secret ops since the beginning knew the Warren Commission was fiction. 
but there was something something deeper. It's everything, including the kitchen sink. You watch that film and you can't quite determine what his theory about the conspiracy is other than it's a broad conspiracy involving all these essential agencies of government from the Pentagon to the CIA to the State Department. Foreign policy professionals trying to get the United States involved in Vietnam. President Johnson had something to do with the assassination. And Stone does make clear that he believes that Lee Harvey Oswald was an innocent man who'd been framed for the assassination. Whatever you might think of this fever dream of a conspiracy theory, it was good movie making. It had an all-star cast, so it got a lot of attention, and it really fueled conspiracy theories. It got people very excited about the idea that the truth about the assassination was being hidden from them. So the film had a huge impact in terms of mainstreaming the conspiracy take on the assassination. The claim made in Stone's film is that the government is still hiding things, that the US government must have records somewhere that is ultimately going to provide a smoking gun proof of a conspiracy in the case of the assassination. And so Stone's film led to public agitation that then led to the passing of the JFK Records Act with the idea that all government records relating to the assassination must ultimately be released. The JFK Records Act was passed in 1992. It mandated that all material relating to the assassination was to be housed in a single collection in the National Archives, and that that collection was to be made publicly available within 25 years, so by October the 26, 2017. To a large extent, that has happened, although with each subsequent presidency, it turns out there are a number of records that are still not released, which obviously continues to fuel the conspiracy suspicions. As far as I understand it, the remaining records each time, it's that they might well be connected to people who are still alive or security assets or revelations about security methods that the American government or the security agencies still don't want to be released. But the vast majority of records ultimately have been released. There are, as far as we can tell, no smoking guns. But what is, I think, really interesting about this huge body of evidence is just the sheer overwhelming volume of it, that even if there were the smoking gun in there somewhere, it would be very hard to find. There's no doubt that the death of JFK was a huge traumatic event. It created a completely new blueprint for conspiracy belief. Conspiracy beliefs have been around for a long time, but in the 19th century, most people were afraid of outsiders. Italians, Irishmen, Irish women, Jews, Freemasons, people who were on the fringe of society or who seemed to be lurking in the darkness. Kennedy kind of brought in the whole idea or at least expanded the idea of the, the incumbent conspiracy. The conspiracy is not at our doors. The conspiracy is among us. The conspiracy is our very elected officials and our nominated agencies that already have the power. It doesn't really inspire hope in the future if everyone is corrupt. You know, when Donald Trump talks about draining the swamp or about the deep state, we're not offered hope. 
what's driving the conspiracy theories is not so much the kind of factual anomalies and kind of weird coincidences. What's been driving the conspiracy versions of the event is this much larger disillusionment with the government, disillusionment with authorities. I think that that context, that much broader context, is what really explains why the Kennedy assassination became the first of a whole industry of conspiracy theorising. Peter Knight, author of The Kennedy Assassination. My other guests, Philip Sheenan, author of Cruel and Shocking Act, and Michelle Garnier, author of Thinking Critically About the Kennedy Assassination. The sound engineer is Hamish Camilleri. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.